So this morning we are uh, continuing on in a uh, message series <clears throat> in Joshua. And um, as we have in the past several weeks, we've been uh, journeying through the book of Joshua, not necessarily verse by verse and uh, not necessarily chapter by chapter, but more, more or less looking at the book of Joshua according to its themes, according to the kind of the, the underlying ideas and the values and the principles that lie within the book of Joshua that help us to understand uh, what the book is all about on a deeper level than just recognizing what it is that the words say. We recognize that the words say, uh, as we read the actual words in the page, that the book of Joshua is about the conquest or the giving of, from God to the people of Israel, the Holy Land, or the, the taking of the Holy Land of God's people from the Canaanites. We recognize that that's what Historic history tells us that's what the words tell us. But there's there's things that that are kind of undergirding this story that I think help us spiritually to understand uh, not necessarily what God was doing then, but what too God was foreshadowing that He was going to do now and today through Jesus Christ. So in the past we've studied um, through a few themes in Joshua. One of those being that the, the land, the land was a common theme in the book of Joshua, that the land was promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and it was actually, that promise was fulfilled in, uh, the, in the people of Israel during the time that they were taking the, uh, the promised land of Canaan. So, therefore, we move on to the promise. These are God keeping His promises. God keeping His promises was Him keeping His side of the covenants and expecting that people would continue to keep their side of the covenant with him. The people should be a people dedicated to the Lord. They be God's people. He will be their Lord. And there were expectations that God had in order for people to keep his covenant. And in those expectations meant that people had to be obedient to those expectations. So we talked about obedience being a theme. Today we're moving on to a, a theme that's kind of, again, as an uh, umbrella theme throughout the book of Joshua, but I believe that that helps us to understand not only what God was doing through the, uh, through the Israelites in taking of the land, but also helps us to recognize what God had intended to do through all people that call him Father, not just the Israelites, but even those of us today, and that is the theme of holiness. Hence the reason why we sang, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, holy, holy, holy. And holiness is a word that we don't necessarily quite, I don't think we quite fathom, we don't quite understand it uh, to the point that God uh, expects us to understand it. In fact, we recognize that we don't understand it because we don't always practice it. We don't always practice holiness. And we recognize that the people that, that Joshua was leading into the promised land, that God was asking these people to be set apart to be a holy nation, were doing the same thing. They weren't, actually, they weren't always practicing acts of holiness in order to point to a holy God. You know, the word holy... Um, by definition, it's the, at its core, it's the idea of being separated, as being separated out. 
when God would, would designate things that were holy and things that were common, he was talking about things that were separated out from the common, from the mundane, from the everyday, that were going to be dedicated, that were going to be specifically for his use, that were going to be special, that were going to be sacred, that were going to be good. That is the, the overarching definition of holiness. And he expected that of his people as they were moving into this pagan, defiled land. And as we consider holiness and the theme that it is in Joshua, we recognize that, first of all, the first, one of the first places that we see holiness mentioned is in Joshua chapter 5. And I believe that one of the first things that, that we see, one of the points that we see in God's holiness is that where the presence of the Lord is, where the presence of God is, there is holiness. We recognize in Exodus chapter 3, Moses uh, walks to the, to the foot of Mount Horeb, which is uh, synonymous with Mount Sinai. You probably recognize Mount Sinai more than you recognize Mount Horeb. And he sees this, this, uh, this thing that's on fire, this burning bush that was on fire, but it wasn't consumed. And we see almost synonymously the words that are spoken to Joshua were spoken to Moses whenever Moses was commissioned by God to lead the people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And one of those things that God said was as Moses approached the burning bush and he recognized it was the presence of God, God said, what? Remove your shoes, for this place you are standing is holy ground. Now, move forward into Joshua. Now that the people have, for some 40-some-odd years, been in the wilderness, some 40-some-odd years removed from that moment of Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai at the burning bush, and Joshua is now is, is, care, is um, leading the people of Israel into the promised land, into the land of Canaan, and their first conquest is up ahead. It's Jericho, this big, huge, walled city. And as they cross the Jordan River, they're, they're coming up to Jericho, and Joshua confronts or is encountered by a man standing in front of him. And we read that in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 through 15. Joshua was near Jericho. He looked up. He saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua approached him and asked, he says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Joshua obviously recognized this was some sort of, of warrior. And this man responds, neither. I have now come as the commander of the Lord's army. Now we spoke about this passage earlier in the series where we, met that, where we recognized that, that God is for himself. He's not for Israel. He's not for Canaan. He's not for the enemies. He's not for the good guys or the bad guys. God sets a level of righteousness and a level of holiness that is his and his alone. He has his plan. He has his way. He has, um, he has his righteousness, his goodness. That is what everything else should be defined by, that control that is God's um, that is, God, that is the, the, I guess, the, um, the level by which all other things are measured. So this man says that I'm not for either one. I'm here to command the Lord's army. Then Joshua bowed with his face to the ground in homage and asked him, What does my Lord want to say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did that. 
Now, for most of us, as we continue reading, we go from chapter 5, all of a sudden it seems like the, the, the whole instance just ends there, like abruptly. Like Joshua says, what do you want to say to me? And this is what this commander says, remove the sandals on your feet for this land that you are standing is holy. And then we expect that maybe there's going to be something else that this guy is going to say to Joshua, but that's not recorded. It goes right into chapter 6 to where the conquest of Jericho. And we're left wondering, well, did the writer leave something out? Did he leave something out of this passage that where we, we don't quite have the complete thoughts or the, the complete conversation between this commander of the Lord's army and Joshua? And the more that I got to reading that and the more that I felt like I was hitting a roadblock every time I get to the end of chapter 5, I started to recognize, wait a second, no, that that which that commander of the Lord's army said to him was all that he wanted to say. Sometimes that's tough for us whenever we recognize that God says a little something and we expect a little bit more. But God said, no, that's really all that I needed to say. And that's exactly, that's all that the commander of the Lord, that's all that the Lord needed to say to Joshua. Recognize this, the presence of the Lord is here. Therefore, where the presence of the Lord is, there is holiness. This land that was once defiled, this land that was once unrighteous, that was once ungodly because of the inhabitants living therein, now the Lord's presence in here and is here, and this place is now deemed holy. You know, there was this expectation that, that um, when people would... Um, have land transactions uh, back in antiquity. One of the ways that they would kind of um, uh, mature the contract between a, uh, a real estate, uh, I guess a real estate transaction, is one person, like if you were selling a piece of land, uh, one person who was selling the land would remove their shoes and step off the land, and then the person that was receiving the land or buying the land would step onto the land, and that would therefore kind of ratify that contract. And they recognize, all right, this is ceremonially, you have, you have the one person has relinquished the property, and the other person has taken the property. Well, God tells Joshua that you're not doing either one of those things. You're not taking, this is my land. Remember in Leviticus chapter 25 where God said, this is my land. Don't forget, you are resident aliens on my, you're just visitors here. This is my land, he tells the people of Israel. So he tells Joshua to take off your sandals. Don't pretend like, uh, don't, don't think that just because you're stepping foot on this, it becomes your land. This is still my land. It is holy. It is set apart. It's set apart for sacredness, for goodness, to make my name known and great. And God determined to sanctify that land as holy and set apart for him. Joshua, remove your sandals. Don't defile it with anything that's on your feet. Don't defile it with the dirt of the defiled land. I want nothing between myself, God saying, my holiness, and my holy people. Nothing between the two of us. You're standing here, and my presence, and your presence, is there, there, there is no in-between. There's no sandal, there's no shoe, there's no you know, piece of leather or dirt or defilement in between us. You are on holy land. 
And God determined to sanctify that land and set it apart for him. And then he calls those people. After he tells Joshua to reveal to him that this land is holy, that this land is my land and I'm giving you this land, he calls his people that are moving into that land to also be set apart, to be holy, so that they could testify to the holy God in which has, the one who has made the land holy. And God causes people to be set apart in several different ways. I mean, some of those we've already spoken about. We spoke about in Joshua chapter 5 that one of the, one of the ways he talked about being uh, set apart was circumcision. So that's going to set you apart. That's going to be able to uh, be a distinguishing mark between a holy people and an unholy people. He talked about in Joshua chapter 5. He says you're going to remember and you're going to continue to keep the Passover. This is something that's very foreign to a foreign nation. And that Passover meal was a way that the people were constantly reflecting on and testifying to the setting apart of themselves from the Egyptians. They recognized that the Egyptians were an unholy, defiled people. Keeping of the Passover helped them to remember that they were holy and they should remain as such. And then, of course, in Joshua chapter 8, verse 30 through 25, Joshua continued to reiterate the law. He reiterated the law because this was going, and, and law, law with a little l, was actually going to distinguish God's people from the people there that they were uh, encountering in the land of Canaan. That's because the people that they were encountering in the land of Canaan were more or less lawless. And God had given them this law through Moses with the capital L, these set of rules of instructions that would help them to make sure that they were distinguished, set apart, holy, sacred for God's good work there in the new land. But the greatest testimony of holiness, the greatest testimony of holiness that the people would assume of the Israelites setting themselves apart in the people of the land, they, they, were, they were to be different. They were to act different. They were to behave different. And we read in, all the way back in Leviticus chapter 18, the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them, I am the Lord your God. Don't follow the practices of the land of Egypt. Don't follow the practices of the unholy people you came from. And also don't follow the practices of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You must not follow their customs, chapter uh, verse 4. You are to practice my ordinances. You are to keep my statutes by following them. I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and ordinances. That person will live if he does them. I am the Lord. God says what's going to set you apart. I'm setting you apart as holy. Don't keep the statutes, don't keep the practices, the behaviors of the people you came from, don't keep the ones you're going to. You are going to be a set-apart, unique, holy nation. And you're going to show that by Leviticus 19, being holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, how many of us have read through Leviticus 19? There's this whole list of rules and regulations of behaviors that people have to abide by. I mean, everything from, um, from sexual behaviors to uh, the way that they clean themselves to the way that they, you, you name it, 
It's all in Leviticus 19. And we go, what, is God just being strict here? No, actually he's not. What God has done is he has dissected the behaviors, the practices of the land in which the people are going. And he's saying, all of these things that I'm listing for you, this is how these people act. You are holy and you act in opposite of those people. So when you have an opportunity, read through Leviticus 19. Recognize that God is mentioning every one of those things for a specific reason. He's pointing to practices that were prominent in the land of Canaan and that God was going to use as the opposite behavior with his holy people to set them apart as they come in and as they um, destroyed and took over this land. Leviticus chapter 20 says, You are to keep all my statutes, all of my ordinances, and do them so that the land where I'm bringing you to live will not vomit you out. You must not follow the statutes of the nations I am driving out before you. For they did all of these things, Leviticus 19 and 20, they did all these things and I abhorred them. I promise you, you will inherit their land since I give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who set you apart from the peoples. That emphasis at the end is mine. I am the Lord who set you apart. There is a reason why God was setting his people apart. A, he recognized that the behaviors and the practices of this land that they were entering, he abhorred. They were unholy, they were unrighteous. They were disgusting in his sight. But he also recognized that this holy people that he was setting apart was now going into this unholy place and it was going to infiltrate it for the sake of holiness, for the sake of a holy God. And that's because what is holy as a holy people and what is defiled cannot occupy the same space. They can't coexist. That's why God was telling his people throughout the book of Joshua, when you go in, you need to destroy everything. Because all, not just the people, but all the stuff that they have has been dedicated to foreign deities. All the stuff that they have has been defiled. It's been, it's been uh, dedicated to idols, and it's been in the presence of, of just unrighteousness and ungodliness. And you have to destroy all of these things because what is defiled and what is holy, they can't occupy the same space. Because what's going to happen if they do, if they try? And they certainly tried. Either one of the two things are going to happen. The people who are defiled are going to take notes from the people who are holy and become holy, which would have been nice if that's the way the story went. But that's not how it went. God knew better, and that's why he said, don't leave anybody alive. Don't leave anything standing. Because he knew the second part would happen. That if a holy people tried to coexist with an unholy, defiled nation the unholy and the defiled nation would therefore influence the holy people and the holy people would turn away from the Lord. And the very thing that the holy people were there to do to testify to a holy God, that was completely destroyed. 
You know, how many of us are, are um, campers or hikers? Anybody? There's, um, there's something that we do uh, or we should do uh, whenever you're camping, hike, specifically backcountry, back, backwoods, and, and uh, you don't carry enough water with you and you, you, you run across a water source, you know, a spring or, or a brook or something like that in which you need some water, and uh, you go to fill up your water bottle. And one of the things that we should do is we should have carried some sort of water purification tablet, iodine, chlorine, something like that to put into the water so that the water, therefore, is, is made healthy. So that the bacteria, unless you just love Gerardia and you love dysentery, you probably want to do that, you know? Here's the thing, it's just the same way that whenever holiness like these water purification tablets come in, the expectation is that the bacteria, the bad stuff, is destroyed. That's the hope. That's the expectation. That's what we hope whenever we put that stuff in our water bottle. Well, that's what God had hoped and expected whenever the people moved into the promised land. That this new land was going to now be a holy, and it's the reason we call it holy land. This was supposed to be a land that was set apart, not just the land, but the nation therein set apart for God. You know, the destruction of Canaan and Joshua, we read through that and we kind of scratch our heads sometimes when we go, oh my goodness, God is just, is he just that, um, that hateful? Is he just that mean? Is he just that unloving? Well, the truth is, you know, the fact that, that they came in to destroy everything that was in it, it was done for a few reasons. One, the Israelites needed to take possession of the land as a promise. The second one is they had to punish the wickedness. We recognize that God had told Israelites that's what they were doing. It wasn't because of their righteousness that they were receiving the land. They were actually agents of God's wrath and judgment. And as they move into this land that was defiled, they went in to punish the wickedness of the Canaanites. But there's also something else. It was also for the purpose of cleansing and purifying the land. And it was a way to, to dedicate all the inhabitants, the people, the cities, the booty to the Lord. I put the booty in there because I just wanted to say booty. I'll be honest with you. I thought about, I thought about looking at a synonym for that word, but I've, nope, I'm going to keep that word. It was all about dedicating what was once defiled to the Lord, making what was once common, once was, what was once mundane, what was once defiled, committing that to the Lord and making everything holy, not just, not just for the sake of writing it down and for the sake of, for the, for the sake of just a, 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 the, the end of a good story. It was the sake of knowing that there was a holy God who was alive and well and who was making his name known through a holy people who was going in and was sanctifying all things that were evil, that were unrighteous, that were defiled. So how does this, how does this translate to today? How does this translate to to the life we live now? How does it translate into the, the age of Jesus Christ, into the, uh, the, the day of our Lord, into the kingdom of God? Well, the truth is, truth is it translates so perfect that I didn't even need to change the headers on my points. In fact, I'm going to use the same exact points that I used for Joshua for what we are now in the New Testament. 
because of this same idea of holiness, the same expectation of holiness. A, where the presence of the Lord is, there is holiness. We recognize in John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus himself says, I'm telling you the truth, it's for your benefit that I go away, speaking of um, this uh, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension into heaven, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. And if I go, I will send him to you. And what is he going to do? Verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you no longer see me about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Jesus promises the presence of God is now going to be inerrant to our very being, into our heart, into our soul because of his ascension, because of his resurrection. And he's recognizing this very, this very point that where the presence of the Lord is, there is holiness. There is a conviction of sin. There is, there is something, there's the holiness of God that is, that, is, that is seeking to turn the defiled, the unrighteous, into what is holy and what is righteous. Is there to distinguish what is, what is wrong and what's, what's right, what's bad and good, what is, what is perfect and, and, and between what's good and what's evil. And through the presence of God with us, through what Jesus Christ did, he calls his people, just like God called the people of Israel through the book of Joshua, to be set apart, to be set apart to testify to a holy God. In fact, it said this over and over again in the New Testament. Paul and Peter, two of the prominent ones that repeated this truth. We are to be set apart to testify to a holy God. Peter says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But but as the one who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all of your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Sounds like a repeat of what God said in Leviticus, doesn't it? Paul says to to the church in Thessalonica, God has not called us to impurity, but to live Uh, In holiness, he says to the church in in Corinth, their friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. There's this expectation for us to be holy as God is holy, just like he expected Israel to be holy as they walked into an unrighteous, defiled land. Paul says to the Romans, Brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed. You can't make this up, all right? You you can't put, do not be conformed to this age. What does God say in Leviticus to the people of Israel? Don't practice the way that they practice. God tells us, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Sounds a lot like Leviticus, doesn't it? It's almost like they just rewrote the Bible in, in, you know, in, in New Testament terms. An unchanging God doesn't, doesn't alter his values, his characteristics, his expectations of people. His expectation of holiness then is the same thing as expectation of holiness now. 
Then, of course, that final point, which I think is one that the one part that we fail at over and over again, and we're just like our brothers and sisters in Israel when they took the promised land. And that is what is holy and what is defiled cannot occupy the same space. They cannot coexist. But boy, we try. We sure do like our cake and eat it too, don't we? We like to keep a little bit of holiness to make God happy or make, make, make us feel like God's happy. But then we like the pleasures of this world too, which is kind of like, yeah, you know. It's no different. We're, we're no different than the people of Israel. As we're reading through the book of Joshua, we go, oh, you idiots. And what we should really be doing is, I'm an idiot. I'm doing the same thing. God's asked me to be set apart for his name. He's asked me to be holy. But yet, I'm trying to coexist. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, to have this dualistic lifestyle of defilement and holiness. They can't coexist. The Apostle Peter said, rid yourself of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. These are the things he asked for them to be cast out. This is the defilement, the, the unholiness, the unrighteousness. Cast these things out. Verse 2, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that it may grow up into, uh, excuse me, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. Verse 3, again, this emphasis is mine. If you have tested that the Lord, excuse me, if you have tested that the Lord is good, as you come in, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, and this emphasis is mine, you, you yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built up to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the same way that God was testifying to himself, or he was hoping to testify to himself through a holy nation, he's hoping to do the same thing through you and I, as followers, as obedient disciples of Jesus Christ. As being a holy set-apart people, his expectation is that we put aside all of these things of this age and that we listen to the Spirit of God to conform ourselves to His likeness, to His goodness, to His righteousness. And where's the, where's the perfect illustration of that? It's in Jesus Christ. If we want to know what holiness, righteousness, goodness, truth looks like, all we have to do is look at His Son. And the thing is, he says in verse 5 again, that emphasis, you are a holy priesthood. When I think about what, is a, what does a priest do, what, is the, what, is a, what are we expected to do as a priesthood? Well, A, we're one that carry the word of God. We, we carry the, the, the truthfulness of God to people around us. Be a priesthood, the priests were also making uh, atonement for people around them. They were the ones that, were, that people were looking at as examples of what holiness was. And in a sense, just as Israel was expected to be a people that infiltrated a defiled land and therefore made it holy, we too are called out to be holy, infiltrating a defiled culture 
today in order to set it apart and make it holy. Now, that doesn't mean that we go when we kill our neighbor and our neighbor's dog and we take, burn his house down. Anything. We don't do that, okay? Because where we live now, the, the space that we live now is in a spiritual, godly kingdom to where the holiness of God is revealed through His Spirit, through His Word, through the truths of Jesus Christ. And that's why we get Jesus' teachings from places like Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We read the Sermon on the Mount. And again, just as God was writing out in Leviticus 19 and 20, Jesus is not just listing out a, a, a whole um, a laundry list of rules and regulations. He's saying, look, this is what holiness looks like now in the kingdom of God. That adultery and lust and murder and greed, it all looks different now in the kingdom because the holiness of God is spirit and all these things that have been swelled up in your heart that are defiled. Now, not just check your behavior, which we recognize God told the Israelites to do. Check your behavior and make sure that His holy God tells us now through Jesus and through Jesus' teaching, check your heart and make sure that not just your behavior is holy, but your heart is holy. And that as each one of us are rubbing shoulders with our pagan community, with an unrighteous world around us, we therefore are being a testimony to a holy God. We're speaking the, 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 the truths and the righteousness of a different way of life. A way of life that is perfect and holy and righteous in our Lord. That was inaugurated by Jesus Christ himself. And for each one of us that call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, in that he has given the presence of his Holy Spirit to live in us, to continue to... Uh, to um, sanctify us and make us holy. It's there for a purpose. Yes, it is there to please the Lord, but what it is there as well is for us to continue to spread the holiness through our community, through our town, through our neighborhood, through our family, through our household. And we have to be careful, just as the people of Israel were, because defilement, and holiness can't coexist. We have to always be on the offense, recognizing that defilement's always knocking at the door. Worldliness is always knocking at the door, trying to overtake the holiness. But we have to be on the offense. We have to be the ones that are taking the holiness to the world, the holiness of Jesus Christ, the good news of his message, of salvation through his blood, of the forgiveness of sins, of life eternal, through a reign of a mighty Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Through a value system that looks foreign to this world, just as the value system of the Israelites look foreign to the Canaanites. And as we do that, we reveal an almighty, all-holy God, who, you know what, is going to be King. And I think it's best that the world know what to expect whenever Christ comes back and he sits on his throne. They kind of understand at that point what the culture is going to look like. It's not going to look anything like what the world shows us right now. 
And each one of us are messengers for that. As we commune together this morning, I hope that that's something that will be on the the cusp of our hearts. Recognizing that God has, just as he set apart Israel for holiness for his namesake, he also sets apart you and I for holiness for his namesake. To make the name of his son Jesus Christ known. To make it honored and glorified throughout the world. To show a lost and dying, defied, unrighteous world what a holy God looks like. He does that through me and you. And just as God instructed his people when they passed through the land into the land of Canaan, remember these things that set you apart. And one of those things was the Passover. So we too have something to remember. We too have something that we gather around intentionally, a table of our Lord Jesus Christ, to recognize that we too are set apart. The world doesn't do this, okay? They, they, if they do, it's just bread and juice. It has no meaning whatsoever. But for us, because of our submission to Jesus Christ, we recognize that the bread is a remembrance of His broken body. The cup is a remembrance of His shed blood that caused Him to be King. That caused us to be able to see God's holiness in the flesh. And that causes us to have a face-to-face revelation of God's holiness now and forever through God's Holy Spirit that was given to us through that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I pray this morning that as we take the bread and the cup, and again, I say this several times, but this is for people who follow the Lord Jesus. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, this is your meal because this is His meal to you. And as family, you don't have to be a member of this uh, fellowship. You don't have to, you know, if, if you follow Jesus, Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, Jesus welcomes you around his table. But it also comes with a caveat that he's calling you and me to be holy as he is, as his son is holy. And therefore, that's why we check ourselves, check our hearts before we take this meal. We ensure that we are in the right heart and the right spirit to commune with a holy God, to remember His holy Son. Because defilement and holiness can't coexist. Father, I pray that as we take the meal this morning, Father, first that we humbly submit to You. Lord, that we confess this morning Lord, before you, our sin, our disobedience. We confess to you this morning, Lord, the things that we do that are more like the world than they are like you. Father, forgive us whenever we have misrepresented you. Forgive us whenever we have taken what is defiled and called it holy. Father, I pray that you cleanse us now, that we receive that forgiveness. 
Lord, that you reset each one of us in our heart and our spirit this morning to live holy as your son Jesus Christ lived perfectly holy so that we may commune with a holy God. And let us remember, God, the sacrifice that it took, the broken body, the shed blood, for that holiness of God to commune with each one of us and for us to have access to it. We love you, Father. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. And may we commit ourselves to him and his work and being set apart in our homes, in our families, in our community, in our world for the sake of the name of our Lord, Yahweh. It's in Christ I pray. Amen. Let's eat together.